All right, good morning. A brother um, asked me yesterday, uh, how did you start a church? How do you start a church? And it's actually not the first time that's been asked of me. And it's the same thing that always comes to my mind if somebody were to ask me that. And it's, I didn't start a church. God started it. And I understand from being involved in planting three Calvary chapels at my time that God takes and does something from nothing and here's a church. And it had nothing to do with me. You see, God is the one that wants to grow his church. He's the one that wants to add to his church. And so I, I rejoice in that. It's not upon me to say, how would I start this church? But God, you did it. I actually wrote a letter. A lot of you weren't a part of Calvary Chapel when we started in the high school, but we were in a high school for five years before we came into this building. And I wrote a letter, uh, a praise report to our church. It was on 9-23 of 2015, I wrote this letter and I, I wrote, Hi Church Family, <clears throat> it's with joy that I write this email, God has given us a home. At 2.30 today we signed the papers at the attorney's office giving Calvary Chapel Fellowship ownership of our new home. Just like the words of Habakkuk in chapter 1 verse 5 that reads, Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. Though the context of these words are different, the words of this verse speak to me of how awesome and incredible our God is. Even beyond our ability at times to comprehend how he is in his perfect timing could do something like this. What an incredible, or what also is incredible to me is that Calvary Chapel Fellowship is just one of many churches around the world. But God has chosen to give our fellowship this gift from Him. We don't deserve it. We have not earned it. But God in His perfect timing and foreknowledge has simply provided this building for our church to use for His glory. Just like the word to Habakkuk, if someone would have come up to me and said, Greg, someday someone is going to give you, <clears throat> excuse me, a church building for free. In my mind, I would have loved the thought, but I would have said in my head, that just doesn't happen. Kathy and I are excited to see what God has in store for Calvary Chapel Fellowship to see the gifts he has given to each of you and how he's going to use you for his glory. We will be meeting at the school this Sunday for the last time. 
and we'll have our first service in our new building on October 4th. Pastor Greg, look what God has done. I'm quite often reminded myself, it's actually what helps me get through the hard times in ministry, that God is the one that builds his church. God is the one that brought Kathy and I to North Carolina. And he said, I want to start a church there and I'm going to do the work. And I'm reminded of that quite often. I was thinking about the 12 years as a church. I was thinking about this morning about all the people that the people in this church, many that are not here. If I were to count up how many people have come through the doors of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in the 12 years, we might not have enough room in here. We have ministered to many people in this church. But you know what? In my own mind, as I was thinking about all of you and the people that some of the people that are even no longer here in this fellowship that have moved on. This church has touched hundreds and hundreds of people. And I might even go as far as saying thousands of people. And you think, well, I didn't know any about all. Where are the thousands of people that we've touched? I've seen through our mission trips, through doing ministry to uh, all sorts of different ministries outside this wall, different ministries that we're currently involved in, we have touched the lives in some way, in some fashion, in many ways. Many ways. And God has used many of you and is using many of you in this fellowship to do what he wants to do. And that's to reach outside these walls. And I'm thankful for what God is doing. We're going to have that time of fellowship today. We're celebrating 12 years as a church. We're going to be outside enjoying fellowship with each other. And um, with that said, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. We're going to be looking at the two witnesses uh, this morning in this chapter. Father, I thank you for Calvary Chapel Fellowship. I thank you for each one that you have brought along to this church. And Lord, I, I'm thankful, Lord, for the ministry opportunities that you've given to us. Lord, that we would be faithful with what you've called us to do. That we would be faithful with the ministries that you've given us to do. And Lord, I just pray that this morning that you would pour out your spirit upon us afresh. Lord, we would run hard in the days that we're living in. Lord, for you are coming back. And Lord, we look forward to that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 11, verse 3 to 13 is what we're going to cover this morning. Last week, we looked at the tribulation temple. In verses 1 and 2, let's reread it. Then I, John, was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God. Measure the altar and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot 
for 42 months. We talked about the tribulation temple, a temple that I believe literally will be built during the tribulation time. Today, though, in this chapter 11, we're going to look at the two witnesses that we read about. Let's read the text, and then I'll come back and comment. Starting in verse 3, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Wow. What a time it's going to be during the tribulation period. But aren't you thankful if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior that you won't be here. You're not going to be here on the, during that time. These two witnesses that we read about here, I want to give you just some observations that might help you just to form in your head once again. We've read the text but let me give you some observations that you might just be able to grab hold of. In verse 3, these witnesses were told were given divine power by God. And they're going to prophesy for 1260 days. And they're going to be clothed in sackcloth. Let's get that picture in your mind. 
In verse 4, these witnesses are likened to two olive trees and two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. In verse 5 and 6, it says that they will also be given divine protection and supernatural power from God. In verse 7, the work that God has given them to do cannot be hindered for 42 months. In verse 7 also, after three and a half years, God will allow them to be killed by the beast who has ascended out of the bottomless pit. In verse 8 and 9, after they are killed, their bodies will lie in the street for three and a half days to be seen by the world and not be allowed to be put into a grave. In verse 10, the world is then going to rejoice over their death. And they'll even send gifts to one another. In verse 11, after three and a half days, God will breathe the breath of life into them, and we're told that they're going to stand to their feet. In verse 12, and then their enemies will see them and be afraid and acknowledge that God, that the God of heaven has done this. And then in verse 12, after that, they will ascend into heaven as their enemies stand there watching. And then in verse 13, we're told that after this or after these things, there's going to be a great earthquake that's going to follow in one-tenth of the city of Jerusalem will be turned into rubble and 7,000 people will be killed by this earthquake. As I've shared many times, I'm a literalist. When I read my Bible, I believe that what's going to come to pass is how we read it. Look at again at verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses. They will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. My two witnesses. Notice that they are God's witnesses. In essence, they are really God's martyrs. It's actually the Greek word. We get our English word martyr from the Greek word. And the word martyr actually means someone who bears, who bears witness by their death. That's what a martyr is. They bear witness by their death. These will be God's prophets in those days. They're going to be God's witnesses, but they're also going to be God's martyrs. They're going to be sent out during the tribulation period. They're going to be out proclaiming a message for three and a half years of that time. And as prophets of God, they're going to be preaching a message of repentance. A message to those who have been left behind. Those earth dwellers that are still going to be here on this earth. They're going to be in need of repentance. They're going to be, by the prophets, told to repent of their sin. Repent of your disbelief. It's going to be their message that's going to torment the people on the earth. 
We find the word repent in the book of Revelation 12 times. That tells me that the tribulation period is also going to be a time of God's mercy. It's going to be God's mercy towards those Jews and Gentiles that have rejected him. The tribulation period is not just as some people think, just a time of judgment and wrath. It's not just a time that God is pouring out his fury, though he will, during this tribulation period, but it's going to be an incredible demonstration of the mercy of God. He's going to send out his witnesses, his prophets, to go out and proclaim a message of mercy. We might call these two witnesses God's messengers of mercy. There's going to be those that are going to be left behind. People that didn't receive Christ when the rapture happens. And I think all of us that are here this morning and those that are listening online, all of us here this morning, I believe, have people that we love. We have people that have not yet received Christ into their life. And if the rapture were to happen today, they would go into and they will go into the tribulation period. You see, we have a great responsibility, church. We have a responsibility. We have a message ourselves to go out and to tell this world that they need to turn to Jesus Christ. They need Christ. I want you to consider for a moment those whom you love. And even those co-workers and those neighbors and those people that you've been praying for to receive Christ. A prophet is one who is sent by God to speak on his behalf. To speak God's word. To speak the truth. To bring the gospel message to this world. You see... We could see the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 18. This was his message that he preached. It says in Ezekiel 18.30, it says, Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel. This is Ezekiel to the house of Israel. I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways says the Lord God. And then he says this, Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Do you see God's mercy there? Repent. Turn from your transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit and then he, Ezekiel says this, he says, For why should you die, O house of Israel? Why should you die? You just simply, if you'll repent, 
If you'll turn from your sin and you'll turn from your disbelief and you'll turn to your God, you'll live. It finishes in verse 32. For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. You see, God loves this world. He loves his creation. Even those that are rejecting the gospel even now, he loves them. He's a God of mercy. He's not willing that any would perish. According to 2 Peter 3, 9, he's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Each week, and I've been really compelled as I've been in the book of Revelation to give an invitation. I believe most of you, if not all of you, are saved here this morning. At least from what I can observe, that you know the Lord. But I want to remind you, how many people do you know in your family that do not know the Lord? How many people do you love that you don't want to see go through the tribulation period? How many of them need to repent and they need to turn to the Lord? You see, as a church, we need to be outside these walls. We need to be compelling those that we say we love to come to this place to hear a message that they might turn to the Lord and that they might be saved. We need to invite, we need to compel people. It's a responsibility of each one of us. Compel those people. To come in here or look for opportunity to open your mouth and be bold in your witness to them. Jesus Christ is coming back. And I can tell you that when that day comes, there's not going to be a second chance. They're going to be ushered into the tribulation period. You're going to be in heaven if you know the Lord. They're going to go into the tribulation period. I want to ask you, is that really a reality to you? Is that real to you? Or are we just reading a story from the book of Revelation? We've been commissioned, all of us, to go into the world and make disciples. God says, I will give you the same dynamic power that I gave all the early church in the book of Acts. I'll give you that same dynamite power in your life to be a witness for me. And not only that, but I'll give you the words to speak in the moment that you need them. And I ask you, do you need anything else other than that? You've got God's supernatural power upon your life. You have the words and the promise that I'll give you the words in the moment that you need them. To speak forth the needed words for the person that you're speaking to. Do you need anything more than that? God, may we all be bold in our faith to go out and share the gospel and compel people to come into this place that they might hear the word of God, that they might be saved. These two witnesses, like the prophet Ezekiel, are going to be going out into this world and in essence are going to be saying, turn from your evil ways for why should you die? 
is going to be their message. If you'll just simply repent and turn from your iniquities, you'll live. If you'll turn from your disbelief, you'll live. The seven letters to the seven churches, they all, through those seven churches, the word repent is used numerous times in those letters. In Revelation chapter 9, in verse 20 and 21, we read this already, but a reminder, it says, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, speaking about the trumpet judgments, it says that they did not repent of their works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. They did not repent. In Revelation 16, 9, it reads, and men were scorched with great heat. We'll get there. Men were scorched with great heat. And it says that they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. And then it says this, and they did not repent and give glory to him. They did not repent. In Revelation chapter 16, verse 11, it tells us that when the bold judgments are being poured out, the people on earth, they begin to blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And we're told that they still did not repent of their deeds. You see, that's the danger. When a heart gets hard and it hardens itself, it can get harder and harder and harder to the point that they will not repent. They can't repent. They won't repent. They did not repent. Paul warned of this in Romans chapter 1. He says that God, some in, in, in each person's life, it could be at a different time, some it will be in this life. Some it will be during the tribulation period. But Paul says that God will give them up to their vile passions. He'll give them over to a debased mind to do those things that are fitting. In other words, God has great patience, more patience than we could ever have. He's merciful and loving, not willing that any should perish, but there will come a point at which God will turn them over to their vile passions. He'll turn them over to a debased mind, a mind that's been given a test and fails. We're also told here in verse 3 that these witnesses will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. That's three and a half years. Half of the tribulation period. And that's a lot of preaching, isn't it? For three and a half years, these witnesses will be out preaching that message of 
repentance, that message of mercy. Some have wondered when will these two witnesses be? We know that it's three and a half years, but will it be the first three and a half years or will it be the second half of the tribulation period? I'm going to give you a few reasons why I believe that it will be in the first half of the tribulation period that the two witnesses will be preaching. The first one, it's the beast that we read about uh, in Revelation chapter 19, uh, who is going to be destroyed at the end of the tribulation period. But it's the beast is the one who is going to make war with the witnesses and seek to have them killed. We know that the beast and the false prophet are going to be cast into the fire burning with brimstone at the end of the tribulation period. I think that's one point that tells me it's probably going to be in the beginning. It seems to make more sense that these two prophets are killed in the middle of the tribulation period because shortly after this, the Antichrist, without any hindrance from these prophets, is going to set up his image in the temple, that tribulation temple. He's going to exalt himself like he is God. And he's going to demand that he be worshipped as God in that temple. The third reason is if these two witnesses are going to minister in the second half, it makes no sense to me that these witnesses would be preaching in Jerusalem where we know that in the middle of the tribulation period when the Antichrist sets up his image in the middle that they're going to be told to flee to the wilderness, flee out to the desert, go to Petra, and so there's going to be many of the Jews that are going to flee the city during that time. These two witnesses are going to be in Jerusalem preaching that message. Many of the Jews are already going to be gone to that area of Basra, that area of Petra in the second half. We also know that there's going to be a great celebration. When these two witnesses are killed, by the beast and by his arms, these two witnesses are killed. There's going to be uh, a great celebration over that. And I think another thing that doesn't make sense to me of being the second half is that it'll be at the end of the tribulation period at the Battle of Armageddon. I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of celebration going on at the last few days or in the last part of the tribulation period. This is going to be a time where God is going to be pouring out his wrath in the great tribulation under these bold judgments with the battle of Armageddon being the final battle fought. If these two witnesses are killed in the middle, then it would be more naturally, it would contribute to the rise and the fame of the beast in the second half. These are just some of the things as I was looking at it thinking, when will this take place? When you read the book of Revelation, I've already said to you last week, we're about in the middle of the tribulation period. You can't read it straight through and chronologically say, because now we're in chapter 11, this is happening in the second half. For me, it seems best to put these two witnesses during the first half 
of the tribulation period. We're also told that they're going to do their ministry clothed in sackcloth. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a person clothed in sackcloth, but these two witnesses are going to have on this type of material, this sackcloth, this rough, coarse, kind of bag-like clothing, is what we would picture from the Old Testament. These are garments that would symbolize mourning. They would symbolize grief, but they can also symbolize the repentance that they're preaching. They're out in this sackcloth, preaching a message of repentance to the people. These two prophets that are wearing sackcloth. And what I see in this is that they're not concerned with how they look. Have you ever noticed that there's a lot of preachers and teachers today that are really concerned how they look? Have you ever noticed that there's a lot of preachers and teachers that don't even want to use the word repentance? They don't even want to really even talk about sin because there'll be fewer people that'll come through the doors. You see, these two witnesses are not afraid to preach repentance. They're telling the people what they need to hear that they might turn and live. They came clothed in sackcloth. They stood out amongst anybody else, and they're boldly proclaiming this message to the world. John is then given some other descriptions of these two witnesses, but we're not told their identity. We see some descriptions of the witnesses, but we're not told specifically their identity. Keep in mind that in the day of on-the-spot television that we have, when we're talking about these two witnesses preaching, do you think that this is going to hit the news channels? Do you think that they're going to be able to see people all over this world, be able to see these two crazy guys that are out there preaching repentance and sackcloth, that are becoming a torment to all that are in the world? tormenting those that are on the earth. God only needs two. He can torment and turn the whole world around with just two. If I were to throw out all the symbolic approach to this chapter and all of the allegorical approach to this chapter, I would be left with a literal interpretation. Where do you think I stand? I'm a literalist. And we still have, though, with that, a variety of interpretations when it comes to the identity of who these two witnesses are. I'll give them to you, and then you can wrestle with them. It doesn't really matter to me which two you choose. All I know is there's going to be two witnesses. But Elijah and Moses are two that have been speculated. Elijah and Enoch. Elijah and John the Baptist. Elijah and John the Apostle. Elijah and an unidentified person. This person wouldn't go wholeheartedly and say, he just said Elijah and an unidentified. Peter and James. Peter and John. Peter and Paul. 
The two high priests, Annas, Annas and Jesus, two unknown persons who will minister in the spirit in the power of Moses and Elijah in the future. Again, I go back to being okay with not knowing everything. If you want to speculate who this might be, that's fine. Nothing wrong with speculating. It's just that it doesn't tell me for sure. If God wanted us to know, do you think he would have specifically wrote out who they are? I think he would. He would have told us straight up. All I need to know is there's going to be two witnesses dressed in sackcloth that are going to be prophesying for 1260 days. A message of mercy. But with that said, I do think that Moses and Elijah are the two good possibilities. So there's my speculation. Good, two good possibilities of who these two may be. But I won't stand on that. I'll just, I've got two witnesses. I've shared in the past a number of times as we've been going through Revelation that we should never lose sight of the Jewishness of this book. The Jewishness of what we're reading. The symbols, the types. We can find many of these as we look back into the Old Testament. It helps us in our understanding of the book of Revelation. But if you're not a Jew, you're sitting there scratching your head quite often. What are you, what are you talking about here? But if you're a Jew, it makes perfect sense. And so we need to read the book of Revelation with Jewishness in our mind. Do a little bit of homework. And understand that a lot of the things that we read made very much sense to a Jew. To a Jew. Things that would sound foreign make clear sense to them. Now last week I, I shared about the temple, tribulation temple. Temple to the Jew, they understood the measuring reed, the altar, the court of the Gentiles, the holy city, the two witnesses, the sackcloth, the two olive trees, the two lampstands, the power given to these two witnesses, no rain on the earth, water turning to blood, power to strike the earth with plagues, all of these things and more. To a Jew, they understood what was being said. But I want you to remind you also that God made promises and he made covenants with the nation of Israel that I want to make an emphasis upon. They cannot be broken. The promises that God made to the nation of Israel, uh, to them specifically, they cannot be broken. And it's important that you never forget that. Promises to the church age saints, that's you and I, that have been given by God, they cannot be broken. God has made promises to you and I that he will fulfill. Aren't you glad that he's going to fulfill what he did in Israel? The promises and covenants? Because it gives us a lot of assurance that the promises that he gave to the church age saints, he will do also. Promises from God and covenants from God are important. He's a God that cannot lie. 
He will fulfill what he said he's going to do. I keep telling you as we are going through that, that God has this incredible plan of salvation. I've taken you back a little bit to Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. If you haven't ever read those three chapters back to back, I encourage you to do it. You'll read there, Israel past, Israel present, Israel future, chapter 9, 10, and 11. Look at your Bibles at verse 4. These two witnesses are like two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. John was given this description that these two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of this earth. But remember what I shared in the past that the book of Revelation is really a summary. When you're reading the book of Revelation, it's a summary, it's an unfolding of what all the Old Testament prophets already said. So when you read the book of Revelation, but you don't read any of the Old Testament passages to correlate with it, it'll be harder to understand. The book of Revelation is an unfolding of what the Old Testament already said. That's an important uh, truth to know. The text that we might look at when it comes to the two olive trees and the two lampstands would take us back to Zechariah chapter 4. Now within the book of Zechariah, there, God had given him eight visions that Zechariah received from the Lord. But in one of them, the fifth vision that Zechariah received, we read, and it's in a different context than what we're reading here in the book of Revelation, but we get this imagery of these olive trees and these lampstands. Let's look at our Bibles at Zechariah chapter 4, verse 1. Now the angel who talked with me came back and he wakened me. This is the prophet uh, that is receiving this. He wakened me as a man who is awakened out of his sleep. Get that picture in your mind. This just came out of nowhere as he was sleeping. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I'm looking and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the seven lampstands was seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. So I answered and I spoke to the angel who talked with me saying, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. So he answered and he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Moreover, verse 8, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. 
Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, which, can, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. Then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and its left? And I further answered and said to him, what are these two olive branches that dip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? And he answered me and said, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand before the Lord of the whole earth. Sounds like Revelation chapter 11. Sounds like the imagery that we're reading here. And so what does it mean? These two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11 are likened unto Zerubbabel and Joshua who will be anointed. These witnesses will be anointed by God during the tribulation period to bring people back. Bring God's people back to the worship of God. The same way that they were anointed by the Holy Spirit to bring light to Israel. You see, Israel is in darkness today. There are Jews that are getting saved, but Israel has blinders over their eyes. They need to see the light. These two witnesses are going to come on the scene by God and they're going to be anointed. They're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach and to shine like lights in a dark world. The message of these two witnesses, as I already said, will be one of repentance. Turn from your sin to God. A warning that judgment is coming. The, the end is coming. And that the day of the Lord, the coming of the Messiah, it's at hand, it's here. You missed it. Jesus was the one we were waiting for. We're also told that these two witnesses, they're standing before the God of the earth. In standing before the God of the earth speaks of their accountability. These two witnesses to God have been given the authority by God to go out and preach the message that they're preaching. They're doing it with boldness. You see, when you have a message that you know is from God, when you know the gospel of Jesus Christ, how much more bold you are when you witness? Did you know that Jesus could forgive you of your sin? Did you know that he died on the cross for your sin? Did you know that he rose from the dead three days later? When you're convinced of that, you speak it forth with boldness. These two witnesses... God is going to use in a very powerful way. They're going to be messengers of mercy. Look at verse 5. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all the plagues as often as they desire. God-given divine power. 
God-given divine authority. These two witnesses, supernatural power. Fire proceeds from their mouth to devour their enemies. Different interpretations again of what this looks like, what that, you know, it sounds, oh, fire out of somebody's mouth in verse 5. But we read in the book of Nahum in chapter 1, verse 6, uh, a verse that some have attributed to this verse as an explanation. It says, who can stand before his indignation? Asking a question. And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. Now somebody, some have just said the message itself is what devours. But we also read in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 9, that others see this as a literal fire, a supernaturally done that devours their enemies. 2 Kings 1, 9, then the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50 men. And so he went up to him and there he was sitting on top of a hill. And he spoke to him, man of God, the king has said, come down. And so here we have Elijah. And so Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. How would you like to have that kind of power? Just at their command. This was God's doing though. God was using these witnesses. So however you want to say, whether it's in the message or it's a literal fire, God is going to consume those that would come up against these witnesses. I lean towards the literal, if you didn't already know that. If anyone wants to harm them, they must be killed in the same manner. In other words, no one is going to be able to hurt them until God allows it. What's that say to you and I? No one can touch you either. Did you know that? You're untouchable unless God allows it. God allows it. When that time comes, the time has come. These have power, verse 6, to shut, to lock, to bar heaven, so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And like Elijah, and why so many people put this Elijah as one of them, in, uh, in 1 Kings 17, 1, it, see, it says, And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, except at my word. You see what God is able to do when he endures a mere man with his authority and his power? God gave that to Elijah. In James, it's interesting that we read in 5.17 that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He's just like a human being like you and I. Elijah. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. Interesting amount of time in correlation to what we're reading here. It's interesting that both James and Revelation use this three and a half year period, isn't it? 
They have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. This is a three and a half year ministry, both which Moses used against the Egyptians in the book of Exodus, and we know that. And again, Moses and Elijah seem to be ones. They will be given divine protection by God in verse 7 to 10. But here's the important words. Look at verse 7. When they had finished their testimony. When they finished their testimony, then the beast, who is the Antichrist, by the way, that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. But not until their ministry is complete. Not until they're done. Nothing happens prematurely, even in our lives. God's in control of all things. Your steps are ordered by the Lord. And we can trust that. They, these two witnesses, they are going to finish their testimony. It won't be like all the world and the Antichrist and the armies coming up trying to slaughter these two witnesses is going to succeed. It's going to be for three and a half years that they'll preach this message. And God is going to have his hand of protection upon them. Their dead bodies are going to lie in the street of the great city, that's Jerusalem, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Interesting that it adds that on where also our Lord was crucified. You see, in biblical times, this would have been possibly one of the worst indignities to allow a body to lay in the street for three days, three and a half days, to let it just lie in the street and would not allow anyone to bury the bodies. Somebody could make a display of these two witnesses. Put it out to the whole world. The media, can you see the cameras on them now? Can you see the television cameras upon these two bodies laying in the street of Jerusalem? They're gone. And they leave, they leave them there as a display. The city of Jerusalem, also known as the great city, also known as the holy city of Jerusalem, was now being likened to Sodom and Sexual immorality, corrupt practices, wickedness within the city. And even Egypt, historically being that great oppressor of God's people. By the middle of the tribulation period, the Antichrist and his armies are going to move in to the area of Jerusalem. Make their headquarters, if you want to say there. And then look what it says as these bodies are laying there. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into the graves. 
in our technology today, we can see how that would be. That tells me that people over the whole globe are going to witness this. The beast, the Antichrist, wanting to make a mockery of these two witnesses. And then we're told that the whole world begins to rejoice over this. Can you see and hear the people rejoicing even to the, the point it says to make Mary and to send gifts to one another? It was like Christmas time. These two witnesses are gone. These that have been tormenting us for three and a half years, they're gone. Tormenting those who still dwell on the earth. Those who will still not turn in repentance to God. It's interesting that this is the only place in the tribulation when we read in, in the book of Revelation where the earth dwellers are actually rejoicing. We don't see any other rejoicing in any other place, but they're rejoicing now in these two witnesses being killed, being martyred for Jesus Christ. And this is a, one of the verses that really is another evidence to me that it's going to be in the first half. Because in that second half, and we're going to see this as we go forward, this second half is going to be horrendous. I don't think that there's going to be a whole lot of rejoicing going on. Lastly, we see the witnesses that they're going to be resurrected. Look at your Bibles, verse 11. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear excuse me, fell on those who saw them. Remember in Ezekiel 37, where Ezekiel was given a prophecy about the dry bones? And we read in Ezekiel 37, 5, Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. In verse 10, it goes on to say, So I prophesied, Ezekiel, as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. You see, when the, the breath of life is breathed into a person, they come alive. God's going to breathe the breath of life into these two witnesses. Three and a half days laying dead in the street, and he breathed into them, the breath of life. And they're going to stand to their feet. Most people think that when you kill someone, they're dead. But not with God. Three and a half days later, he breathes in them the breath of life and they stand to their feet. Just try to wrap your head around if you were there. Hopefully you won't be there. But wrap your head around what that would look like. They heard a loud voice, we're told. And I'm not sure if it's just the two witnesses or to those that are even there watching this take place. But they hear a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascend to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. 
It's the same words that we read in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Come up here and I will show you the things that which must take place after this. John was ushered in, I believe it's the rapture of the church in Revelation chapter 4. And here we see these two witnesses with the same words, come up here. They're being raptured. The middle of the tribulation period. The clouds... They're caught up into the clouds, uh, to heaven in a cloud. It's interesting, God uses clouds. It's, it's the rapture, the, you know, the dead in Christ are going to rise first, and those of us that are alive and remain are going to be caught up together in the clouds. At the rapture of the church, the two witnesses in the clouds. Jesus at his resurrection, caught up into the clouds. And then following this ascension. Just think about that though. The enemy seeing them ascending up into heaven. They're witnessing that. Just like the disciples witnessed Jesus ascending up into heaven. Until the clouds received him out of their sight. They're going to witness this. And there's going to be fear that's going to come upon them. Look what it says in verse 13 and we'll close. In the same hour, at that same time, there was a great earthquake. When I read great, it's going to be big. It's going to rock Jerusalem. A great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed. And the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. I'm a literalist. A tenth. 7,000. Jerusalem. A portion of it being brought to rubble. A great earthquake. 7,000 people die in Jerusalem. And the rest were afraid, and they gave glory to the God of heaven. What's interesting about that particular last statement is it doesn't tell us that they're giving glory to God and as if they turned in repentance to God. But it could simply mean that they were afraid and they gave Glory to the God ahead. In other words, we can't deny this was God. God did this and raised these two witnesses to their feet and they ascended up into heaven. But when a heart is hard, it doesn't mean that there's going to be a full-on repentance of people eyewitnessing that. Even in that, they will not. Remember, even if they were to come back from the dead, they still won't repent. We have a loving, merciful God who loves each and every one of us. You have the message of grace. We're in the time of grace right now. You have that message. Go out with it. Compel people to come into this place. Live today and live tomorrow like it could be our last. That would be my exhortation to all of us, including myself.
Go and be a witness for Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you uh, for this message this morning, Lord, that stirred my heart. I pray that it would stir the hearts of your people. I pray, Lord, that as we gather in fellowship, Lord, that we would just be so thankful in our hearts that you saved us, that we know you, that you're in our lives. And Father, I just pray that you would bless, Lord, this time of eating together, time of just fellowshipping and speaking about the things of you together. Lord, would you be in our midst? Would you bless this time? And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.